Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 514 with Chef John Tazar of Knife. Oh, stay humble, uh, think everything through, and work your ass off. And, and also appreciate others. Otherwise, you're going to have to try it over and over and over again until you put all those things together. Because I, I just don't believe it will work without that fully, you know, united like that. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Facebook marketing, it's intimidating, it's stressful, but you don't have to do it alone. Our friend, past guest mentor, and industry expert, Nick Fosberg, is launching his automated cash flow masterclass this week. You'll get five automated Facebook marketing systems that attract new customers on a shoestring budget. You'll also get all the offers, all the promotions, and you'll see step-by-step how to set each of these up in 20 minutes or less. This will be selling for $1,500, but he's giving it to you for free for a limited time only. Go to www.restaurantfacebooksystems.com. Wouldn't it be great if you could play music directly from your Spotify account in your own restaurant without worrying about being pinched by the music police? Well, guess what? With Soundtrack, your brand, you can. Unlike Spotify Premium, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack, your brand is licensed for business use. And with SoundtrackYourBrand.com, you can import your favorite music from Spotify and share them directly with your guests. This deal typically goes for $26.99, but if you act now, you can get this deal for $19.99 per month per location for life. Get on it. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef John Tessar. John, are you feeling unstoppable today? Um, you know, I, I don't believe there's anything is unstoppable, but I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I'm good. Really feeling good. I'll take it. I will take that. So Chef John Tazar, who received classical French training in Paris, originally started his culinary career in his home state of New York. He would eventually trade the Big Apple for Sin City to work with Chef Rick Noonan at R. M. Seafood in Las Vegas. By 2017, Tazar embarked on another major move to the then up-and-coming Dallas uh, to take the helm at the ritzy Rosewood Mansion on Turtle Creek. There, he would earn two five-star reviews, and then Spoon and Bar Kitchen came next, followed by Knife in 2014. Over the past 20-plus years, Chef Tazar has won countless Best of Awards, has received four semifinalist nods for Best Chef Southwest by James Beard Foundations, and has made multiple TV appearances, not to mention he just dropped his first book, Knife. How long ago was that? Like a few months ago? Or? Uh, it's, it's been out for about a year. About a year now. Wow. Yeah. I thought it was sooner, because yeah. I mean, it it's still out there. It's still circulating. People it, still want it. It is. We've been very fresh. lucky, you know. It's 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 a it's an unobvious book because the cover says steak, and everybody I think takes meat for granted. Yeah. But um, once people get into the book and they kind of see how it's read, Jordan McKay wrote it with me, and he's an amazing writer. Do you have any with you right now? Um, I don't. Oh, I gave bummer. them all away last night. So <laughs> I should have gotten one last night. I thought about it, but I'll just get them tomorrow. I'll, I'll send you one. Sounds good. Sweet. <laughs> uh, so let's let's get this thing started. Kick it off with a success quote or mantra to get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling. Oh, stay humble, uh, think everything through, and work your ass off, and, and also appreciate others. 
Otherwise, you're going to have to try it over and over and over again until you put all those things together. Because I, I just don't believe it will work without it. that fully, you know, just united like that. Yeah, and uh, dive into humi- humility and why that element of it is so important. Oh, it's so important because, you know, you get the highs and the lows. And then when you're trying to be somebody or trying to find yourself, of course, you're going to be boisterous. It's like, you know, it's, it's like, guys, I, I've always been fascinated by men that can just walk up to women and just say, hi, I'm Bruce. Uh, how are you today? You know, and I look at life that kind of way, you know, and for years I was kind of like insecure, you know, and I think because I had an imbalance. So I think when it, humble is a good place to start when you're trying to find a balance mm. because that's ground zero, right? Like we're all equal. We all respect each other. We all understand that we have a talent or a purpose. And then if you move forward from there, then you can insert things in in a much healthier, much more functional fashion and build build a company, build a restaurant. Co- I dig it. Complete a dream. You know? I dig it. This is going to be a great conversation. Before we move on, I have to take a minute just to thank my friends over at Ethics Suite for uh, for sponsoring the show. And uh, I'm giving you a shout out right now, Juliet. Right now, I'm giving you a shout out. Uh, we're sitting at the uh, Texas Restaurant Association Marketplace, uh, the trade show that happens annually here. And uh, that's what all the chatter is in the background. Uh Chef John was the uh, VIP. What, what was your exact role? I was the cooker of steak last night, as usual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, was, I was working with the Texas Beef Council. We, we cooked uh, quite a, a copious amount of ribeyes and had a little enriched potato puree and some chimichurri nice. for the VIPs last night. Nice. I just wanted to paint that picture real quick for the <laughs> listeners. So let's, <laughs> let's go back to where it all started for you. So when did you know that this was going to be your path, your career? When did you really find the passion for it? You know, I I couldn't guarantee that I was going to do it forever, but around the age of like 19, I had made the move from a pub, you know, cooking hamburgers and steak, ironically. Um, (laughs) Seriously, at the age of 17, 18 in the Hamptons. And then I, you know, I I moved into this house and uh, my roommates were servers in a French restaurant called Club Pierre. And it was owned by Francine Farkas, who ironically, her daughter is Georgette Farkas, who is Danielle Balud's assistant for 30 years and now has her own restaurant in Manhattan. So uh, this is how I got inserted into the restaurant business in the Hamptons by these people with French chefs. And I fell in love with it and I showed some acumen. You know, the chef uh, appreciated my work. Um, I came from a working class family, so I think I had a good work ethic. And um, my mother was a, a, an impassioned, you know, natural cook. Um, and we lived by the ocean and we had farms, you know, the, Long Island is so yeah. beautiful. People look at this as luxurious place, but it, when I grew up there, it was farmland, you okay. know? And so in the fall, um, we've always had this bounty of vegetables and produce. And, and then you have the sea right there. And then New York City's a, a, an hour and a half away. So there's nothing you can't get in that serene, beautiful atmosphere. Absolutely. And that, that kind of laid the groundwork, I think, for my ideology as a chef. Because I am very simple in what I do. So bring know? me to the moment where you kind of said to yourself, I love this. Like, I want to dedicate my life to this. I mean, you made a trip to Paris to study, so you must have been pretty committed. What time, at what point did that happen? This was several years. You know, what happened is that I went to work at Club Pierre at the age of 18, and by the age of 20, I was the chef de cuisine. Wow. So, you know, that's where I I started to see that I had a talent, but I had amazing mentors. Okay. So it was about mentors. Exactly. It's all the people you work with the people you associate with will define how you conduct yourself as, as an adult or as a restaurateur. Let's identify some of these mentors real quick and give me like one or two quick lessons, how they influenced you at this time, the, how they transformed you at this time. You know, oddly enough, Pierre, um, who was not, uh, he was known in the Hamptons in the 80s. I mean, very, you know, he had a, an amazing following. The celebrities that actually frequented this restaurant would blow your mind. I mean, I'd be like name dropping 
Um, but that would be the Friday, Thursday through Saturday night book. Okay. And then the rest would be the creme de la creme of 7th Avenue, of the record business. You know, it was the Hamptons in the 80s, and this was pre-Montauk, East Hampton, you know, uh, Springs, where people were coming to West Hampton because there was an airport there, there were nightclubs there. I mean, this was the disco era. You have to kind of put yourself back. This is like, we're going back to vinyl on yeah. HBO now. You know? <laughs> You're dating <laughs> yourself, Jeff. You know, I hung out with Richie Finesta before the building <laughs> fell on him, you know. Anyway, yeah. but, but I've been around that long, and I think that in hindsight, I can say these things, but at the moment, I was really just a line cook trying to get better and better and better. And I really just love to cook. You know, I was an athlete, um, you know, skateboarder, surfer, snowboarder. My parents were very into gymnastics. So I was always very active. And I think that adrenaline enticed me. And then the romance of the restaurant business, you know, like going out into a dining room and having people want to talk to you, going to a bar, yeah, being recognized the day after you cook something for somebody at the beach and them going like, had a wonderful dinner last yeah, night. So how did you transform in this time? Who were you when you started? Who were you when you left? Oh, uh, you know, it was it was the first. It was so bizarre because, I, you know, I wound up buying Club Pierre. Okay. Um, and I ran it for 11 years as Hampton Square in West Hampton Beach. A lot of people don't know this because it's so long ago. You know, pre-Texas, pre-Knife, pre-Spoon, pre-Mansion on Turtle Creek, pre-Rick Moonen. But I met Rick Moonen during those, those times. Okay. See, so sometimes... When you're working in this business, always be aware of who's around you mm. and who they are. And that goes back to the inspiration. Like, I would read New York Magazine and Gail Green. Like, when I got my first Gail Green review at 13 Barrow Street in New York, and this is 94, 95, I, I, I had to go into my office and take a private moment to myself and, like, kind of weep tears of joy. Because as a child or a younger cook, I, I would read, you know, like... I, Bourdain and I were buddies or, you know, adversaries later on in life. But I see the way this generation looks at him. I mm -hmm. looked at her like she was going to be the one to validate me or I was going to get the information. She was going to set the bar for me. That in the New York Times was going to tell me how what a restaurant should look like, mm. what a restaurant should be. And this was the beef I had with some local food critic in Dallas is that they were just when a critic goes all over the place and a critic wants to be more popular than what they're doing themselves yeah. and there's no level or guide how is the restaurateur to aim for that star system yeah you know and and and, and the critics should have the responsibility of using their writing talent to attract a reader and then the reader should be able to trust that critic and go on a journey with them mm -hmm. and so when they lose that path and we have a lot of them have these days you know because i think it's more life is these days seems to be more about power and you know, deception or manipulation rather than just... I think we're swinging back the other way, though. But I think because of uh, social media, because our lives are open up to the world now, it's really hard to be deceptive. Uh, what you see is what you get, literally, because everybody's documenting things. So the people that are really pulling forward are the ones that are genuine, who are authentic, and who do bust their ass for other people. Do, would you say that there's a shift going on there? In that I, I think social media is, is, is a positive, for sure, but you really have to... I mean, we've just gone through a period where now we're going to be more cautious of it right? yeah because we've had intervention by foreign nations in elections we've had fake news you have all of this catfishing that yeah. goes on you know like after top chef i know a lot of us we've gotten catfished you know like because people think it's funny to you know that is the guy sitting down in his basement yeah. trying to hack into something you know? there's the bad with, with good comes bad i guess i i see your angle there for yeah sure. and, and it's a very visual medium and and food is a very you know kind of visceral in the moment kind of experiential theater thing so I, it's it's always easy to capture things 
I mean, it's not easy, but people have a lot of talent in that, in that genre of photography. And I'm finding that there's a whole generation of like tremendous I yeah. mean, pe people that don't realize what, how great they are as a photographer with an iPhone. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some, some of my friends, I'm, I'm like, not one of those you should be a photographer. <laughs> no, because I take a picture and yeah. it looks like it's okay. Yeah. But they take a picture it's and like, it's just like, oh, how did you do that? It's like the billboard <laughs> yeah. on the I yeah. Apple store. It's, you know, like, it's ridiculous. So I, I think it's a great thing. And I, I do believe that there's a power in it and an honesty in it. But I think like anything in this world, people like to F around. Yeah. And social media is a place that's still not guarded. It's still so wide open. It's really unprotected. You can throw anything up there. And I've, you know, we've all done it ourselves to, on a day where we're feeling, you know, Bill Maher will make a joke like, you know, you like yourself on a bad day, you know, on social media. Or you, like I had a sandwich today and see how many people can, can like that sandwich. So in, in our business, it's relevant. Mm -hmm. But someone else just putting up a sandwich is kind of like strange, I think. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? No, I hear you saying. There's two <laughs> things that you mentioned earlier that I want to go back to because it really it hit me. It resonated with me. Uh, know who is around you. Know who they are. Uh, that and you also mentioned that you were, you were paying attention to these people and they're your aiming points, the people that were kind of giving you that, that standard, that, that person to be. So I want to go deeper into why those two things are so, imper and so important. First, let's start with, uh, you know, know who's around you, know who they are. What do you mean by that? I, I think that just stems from a, a, a philosophy of like, you have to have a foundation and you have to learn. I mean, you, you don't learn on your own. I, I, you know, I think Top Chef... Has, has given me a vision or an explanation of this. Like there was this like season California. So season 13, there was a, 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 con, a contestant, Philip. And a very impassioned chef, has a few restaurants in Los Angeles. But he would just make stuff up. And Tom would just go crazy. You know, and I'm using this as an analogy, not as a, as a rip on Philip, you know, in the sense that there, there's a certain foundation and a history to this business. And, and you have to respect it. And if you look at the greats, they come from that. So why would you want to dispense with that for your own ego just to create your own? So you're talking about like the standards of food, basically. Yeah, like the, there's a standard. That you have to start somewhere and there has to be a guide. Your foundation, yeah. And I think that's the problem with a lot of food today. That's why we have mediocrity in so many places yeah. is because people, it, it's become more, I, I think ambiance and cool or what people think cool sometimes can be more important than what's on the plate. Yet it's a business that's really driven by people who put great things on a plate. Yeah. And, and that can be confusing to the consumer. There's a lot. I think there's a, a time right now where it's, it's getting harder and harder to do the, the, the standards. Uh, I mean, it's getting easier and easier to do the standards well because you can learn easier today than ever before. The information's out there. You can find those standards. I'll, I'll give uh, you an example. Is that a bad? Is, do you agree or disagree with that? No, I, I do, but I think, you okay. know, like I'm, I'm frightened some moments when I go to a restaurant or I talk to my younger friends and they ask for advice on dishes or we're doing events or I'm going to their restaurant and every dish has a freaking radish on it. <laughs> I'm going like, you know, that's a pure visual. Not sure, there's crunch or texture in there and yeah. it has validity mm -hmm. occasionally, but on every dish for a while, you know, like an asturtium leaf on every dish for a while. It's like that, that's someone just mirroring visual yeah. aesthetics mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the Crazy. food. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll go to those places and the food is soulless and it's soulless because it has lacked the foundation or the story of the history or the classic making of the sauce what braising really is, the, the intensity or the clarity of the consomme. See, these ba basic Escoffier, French, Italian, even Japanese is a great yeah. example of like technique. 
that needs to be repeated over and over and over again to create a standard. Yep. And then once you establish the standard, then you can free will. Okay. Then you can become the wild, yeah. you know, roaming artist that you've always dreamed of. Have you checked out uh, Kitchen Creativity by, uh, oh man, her name's escaping me now. Um, Kitchen Cre- the the Flavor Bible. Uh, you know, t- talking about yeah, I've, I've, I, you know, I, I, there's so many things out there, but I have I have seen it. I, I would they, they get to into that, what you're you're talking about right now, like having to learn the basics first, and then like the the the, the next step, like after you get that foundation, the basics, you, you know the standards to like explore and create. I, I think everybody, I can't believe that everybody just doesn't isn't forced to read a Scoffier before <laughs> they they go to cooking school because you know if anything you're, you're going to learn what sauces are and I think that if you see sauces are missing from in general from from food today we have powders we have textures we have crunch we have savory granola you know we, we have clouds and there was foam and yep. all that stuff and, and those are great things but without the base sauce without the stock yeah. the fume you can't do any of that properly. I hear you. I hear you. So I think we're going into a rabbit hole right I'm sorry. now. It's yeah. good. It's good. It's good stuff. But we're going to come back. So the, the original question is, uh, why Why do you have to pay attention to who's around you? And you mentioned it's your foundation and you're also learning from these people is I think the other point that you made. Yeah. Uh, and you're only, and I'm, I'm just going to bounce this off you, you're only as good as the people you attract onto yourself. So if you're paying attention to those people who are around you, their skills, their assets, you can, later in life, you're, you're building this Rolodex of the people that you need to, to build these teams to, to do it right. I mean, was that happening for you? Or, I mean, you have like, when you're going out and opening restaurants, you can call on these people, you can build your team? I've always had periods of tremendous success and team unity. And earlier on in my career, I learned the hard way, you know, those things have kind of blew up on me. I mean, to have a restaurant in the Hamptons for almost 11 years is not blowing up. It was just time to, to go. You okay. know what I mean? So sometimes things run their course naturally. But in today's life cycle, I see restaurants like, you know, being glorified. 12 months, 24 months, maximum 36 yeah. months. And then as soon as they're glorified, they close. Yeah. You know, that's systemic of a lot of different things. But get, getting back to your point and even going back to the sauce making comment, you know, I am the chef I am today because I learned how to be a saucier. I worked a station in a French restaurant where I did 13 sauces. I butchered a case of Dover Sole. I broke down a case of rack of lamb with a cleaver by hand. Oh, you know, wow. like, but... I, it's, it's not like I'm the, your dad telling you like I was in the depression and we had to eat mustard sandwiches. If you're going to be a chef, you have to be able to cook anything and everything these days. And you have to be clever, you know, because even food writers are getting away from fine dining or French restaurants because they want to cater to an audience. They're forced to cater to an audience that's going to listen to them or buy that magazine or read. So like years and years past, the greatest restaurants of all would always be featured in these magazines. Now they're finding little kitschy individuals, unique people. And that's how this generation is going to be discovered. Where before you had to work under the great master and then work your way through the kitchen. And then you would, if you were lucky, you could satellite off. Mm -hmm. Now there are people just coming out of nowhere. Food trucks, pop-ups. Do you think that's a bad thing? No, I I don't. I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. But what we're missing from that is a foundation, uh, um, uh, a standard. Yeah. And, you know, it's very difficult to talk about because when you want to talk about a standard, it sounds like you want to control things or like your viewpoint or your way of thinking is the only way. Where all of these things we just talked about fit within that standard. 
There just has to be an honesty about it. Yeah. I mean, look at like the Alinea group, for example, with Nick uh, Kakanis, who had no experience in the restaurant industry, but he has a brilliant mind, a brilliant, a brilliant operational mind. And he just looked at the standard of what everybody else was doing and going, well, there's a better way to do this, a more efficient way to do this. And for example, like a bartender with uh, Avery, he was like, why, do, why is there one bartender? When there's like all these different parts of a drink, why not break it up like a kitchen and have one person focus on every aspect of the drink and then bring it together at the pass? But that was just one example because he didn't have that foundation that, you know, this is the only way to do it. No, I, I, agree, I agree with you. I mean, some, there's always outsiders or outliers or, or new ways. Yeah. But the percentage of that happening, and I'm not downplaying this because this is the beautiful part yeah. of it. I've even been able to participate in the higher end of acceptance of like, you know, I took steak. And I, I, I went around the country and I, I, you know, I figured out a thing and we take dry aging to a different level or we, we're doing it a different way. You know what I mean? I, I'm a firm believer. Last night I was just thinking to myself after being around the entire restaurant, a lot of restaurant industry in Texas, is that my successes I really have always gone mm. the opposite way. Yes. Or been tried to be the guy outside the box. But I've, I've been allowed to do that because what's inside the box is really basically a lot of it's corrupt. A lot of it's misleading. A lot of it's mediocre. And a lot of it lacks a standard, but yet it has a lot of money behind it. Mm. So we're getting back to what you were just, your analogy of Alinea and Apiary and stuff like that, those are dream places, right? That doesn't, you got to have a lot yeah. of money coming Nick out Kikonis, of the box. <laughs> Nick Kikonis had a lot of money getting into that. Yeah. He, he, made his, he made his fortune before getting into the restaurant. You know, got, got, you know, so that's a perfect example. And, and that's also another example of how the restaurant business can get out of balance. Yeah. Because most people don't have that. Yeah. And then people with money and 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 passion and creativity start to see that there's a there's a uh, an audience or lane for that in our business and they've all come into this yeah. like you see all these boutique hotels they all have high-end bars and like we've been through mixology and all this other stuff like once money gets involved it, it also alters the purity of it but it also allows it to become more mainstream yeah and that's harder for the smaller independent but guy to come up through that because yes. that's, that's difficult. But also getting easier at the same time because of things like social media, because the channels of communication are being fragmented. So now, now it's no longer who has the money, has the message. It's who has the best message, has the attention sometimes. More so, not completely, but more so. Yeah, and also has the ability to almost reset the standard. Mm. Because when the bar is so high, the French Laundry, mm -hmm. you know, Danielle Ballou opening up all these, you know, like, but everyone being at such a high end, yeah, you know, or, you know, like I said, the best Japanese restaurants in, in America, Morimoto and Nobu and stuff like that. These places run like well-oiled machines and the food is superior to most places. But however, very, very expensive, you know, it's, it's, it's outside of the the average yeah. Americans dining, you know, expense. Maybe they will go there once a year or something like that, you know, but the, the, you know, the thing that always fascinates me that they, there are always a lot of people in, in expensive restaurants if they're good and they have a great reputation. So there's, there's tons of money out there to be had. So you don't have to dumb yourself down. I think it's more about being clever and keeping the foundation and, and understanding the standard is within your reach because there are different levels. You know, you can have a food truck and still have the best food truck food. Right. Yeah. It's not going to be a restaurant experience, but you know, you're selling a $4, whatever taco, and it could be as good as any Mexican restaurant you've ever been to. So, I mean, this is where the business is, is totally, it's, it's a, it's wide open. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It's, there's no boundaries anymore. There's no rules. It's just, you got to go out there and sell yourself and, and like Apple did or any branding institution, you got to get enough people to buy in behind you. 
yeah. or your concept to be something. Yeah, this this has been a very philosophy-driven uh, conversation <laughs> up to this point, and I'm loving every second of it. But let's bring it back to your story because I want to kind of dive into 11 years. You, you mentioned your, you had uh, Pierre. Uh, was it uh, Club Pierre, right? I bought Club Pierre and called it Hampton Square. Hampton Square. Okay. Yes. And then... Um, what, why was it, what was happening after 11 years? Why did you decide it was time to move on? What, what, was, what had changed in that time? Lack of, lack of mentors. Okay. It was you had of, lack of mentors? Um, you know, when you're in your own restaurant for 11 years in a resort town, it can get kind of cushy and get kind of comfortable. And it was coming out of that, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And um, you're too young to remember this, but there was a lot of Caesar salad and crab cakes and you know, and I've been French trained and, you know, so do you feel like you hit a ceiling and that if you were going to grow personally, you needed to go be, be with people that were going to push you, drive you? I, I did. And I, you know, also I was coming into my early thirties. Um, I, I knew there was more for my life and, and, and I understand that. And I, I have a lot of empathy and guidance and, and, and support for all of my friends that do own independent restaurants because I know how difficult that life is. And you get the dream of opening your own restaurant but then you become a slave to yeah. that restaurant because it's all about you and your family and your product and you can't leave and you, you sacrifice a large part of your life to, to live within that world. What was your biggest challenge? What, what, reflecting back at this time, what was the hardest part for you owning your own business? Oh, it's always been maturity. and maturity? And, and, and Who's maturity? Your own maturity? My own maturity, you okay. know, emotionally. And I think, um, you know, I've always been carefree. I've, I've, I don't do things for money. It's Give me an weird. example of how you were... Uh, immature uh like give me was there something that you did a way you handled the situation you said emotionally oh yeah what we would do cocaine every night okay while we were working <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty immature yeah. is when you're the boss or um you know just being reckless in the sense that we didn't care about food cost and there would be a party every night because we were in the Hamptons and it was the 80s and it was just it was the way it was you know we okay. weren't being deliberately immature or irresponsible we thought this is what cool was or mm -hmm. the you didn't know that we didn't know any better Ex exactly you know like when i bought hampton square I, I bought it with a bartender friend of mine from the same pub that i worked at prior to working at club pierre and we bought the place for sixty three thousand dollars i wound up buying him out in year two for like eighty thousand dollars and i sold it 11 years later for a quarter of a million dollars wow at, but at the same time there was a rough road for 11 years and at the end of that i wound up going to new york and and coming upon some bad times, this was pre-Kitchen Confidential, yeah. Bourdain stuff, mm -hmm. I lost everything because I didn't have the business acumen and I didn't have enough cushion and I had kind of burned emotional and family bridges by yeah. living in that crazy world for 11 years. And I don't want to mean to make you vulnerable or open you up too no, much, but I, I want to dive in and, and know exactly how, how did, what were you doing in your life? How did you, what were the, the, the decisions you made to, to lose it? Looking back, like I want you to prevent somebody from doing the same thing you did by getting into this. It, it's hard to prevent what I went through because I think I needed to go through it and that was my path. But if we can take my personal you know, actions out of it, it's just that before you go into the restaurant business, especially your own small independent restaurant business, right? Be aware that it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. And uh, you better be darn good and you better have a lot of friends and good people around you as a machine. Because I think when you have a small independent restaurant, it's like a family and a team. Mm. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You know, it can be a cult. It can yeah. be cultish at times because, you know, you admire the sommelier or the maitre d' or the chef. You know, it's a pecking order. And I do come from that European trained system. And I think most great New York restaurants or American restaurants are still built on that. 
you know, European system. You know, like everybody wants a sommelier. Can you afford one? Everyone wants a pastry chef. Can you afford mm. one? It's, it's being clever, but being clear as to what you can accomplish. And the more skills you possess as an entrepreneur, the easier it is for you to succeed and probably the greater chances of your survival. Yeah. Because you're not giving out all of this money all the time to everybody else. Because, you know, your landlord is your partner, your purveyors are your partner, the government is your partner. And then if you're not cooking and you're paying a chef or a pastry chef or a front of the house person and they're not in your family or something, first of all, you have to gain their loyalty and their trust. And then how do you keep them over a long period of time? Because how much can you pay them? And if they're really that good, other people are going to start seeking those people from you. Yeah. Whether you gave them the opportunity or not, you can't hold them back in your career. So that, that is the, be aware that there's a lot of pitfalls in the independent first time restaurant world. And you really have to have these mechanisms. First, lawyer yourself up. Don't pay too much for rent, mm-hmm. right? Have a clear plan. Work out all of your costs and your pro formas on paper and have an expert or an accountant or someone who manages money review your work. Yeah. And if it doesn't work on the bottom line before you open, it's never going to yeah. work when you open it. Exactly. Yeah, you're making some really great points right now. Thank you for getting to those details. Uh, so you end up leaving New York after you lost it all. Was this for, were you trying to read? No, I'll, 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 I'll sum or? it up real quick. So like, you know, the early part was Magic's Pub, hamburgers and steak. I went to Club Pierre. I did that for seven years. I bought Club B, uh, Pierre Hampton Square. did that for 11 years. Went to New York, went broke, lost everything. Went to work at Formerly Joe's, met Bourdain, you know, that whole crew. Sorry for your loss, by the way. That's, you know, I, I feel bad for Eric and, yeah. and, and Tony's family. I mean, I, I still haven't wrapped my hands around it. We weren't close over the last two or three years. So, you know, I'm perplexed. I'm saddened by it. But, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the last person you should worry about. Because okay. we... You know, he, he always very dark, but I, I don't want to go off on a, a boy yeah, yeah, tangent. I just, but and then and then I just you know I I, I reinvented myself um, with Thirteen Barrow Street, and that's Gail Green gave me that amazing review. I mean, imagine this: you've had all of this failure, right? And then you get this another an opportunity yep. in New York City on a side street. But this is where I wasn't business savvy, and this goes back to helping people, mm-hmm. right? So. I had all of this success, long year run in the Hamptons. Everybody knew who I was. I had reviews, blah, blah, blah. And I'm still in my early 30s. I get this second chance after all of this nightmare of losing everything, going through this formerly Joe's, the supper club, the Inaquag, one more time. And my partners, my friends from Wall Street, my childhood friends, yep. put me in business in a small 50-seat restaurant. Everybody in New York City loved it. One night, Maccioni family at one table, Tom Colecchio at another wow. table. Matthew Kenny, Bobby Flay, Douglas Rodriguez Jeez. at another table. And then later on, Scott Bryan and Bourdain and a whole bunch of line cooks would come in late at night like it was Blue Ribbon. Yeah. Right? I thought we were on top of the world. At the end of the day, we were losing probably two or $3,000 a week. Oh, man. Because we cost. were caught up. We yeah. didn't know what our costs yeah. were. We were paying $10,000 a month rent. And this is in the 90s in New York City. This is after you lost it all? Yeah. Okay. This is this is on the second. <laughs> this was the second strike. No, I'm, I'm happy you're getting right. into this. And I'm not happy that you, I mean, no, you're a better a long person time, because you know? of it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this is the stuff. This is how we can be mindful of what we're doing in our lives. Yeah. So we can prevent that kind of stuff. So we have yes. these storylines. So keep going. Be, be cautious, you know, like, and, and be aware. You know, like I said, th- these were common mistakes back early on in the 80s and 90s in the restaurant business. Everyone just opened up. And it was kind of crazy because the money was raining down from the sky. But then when the recession hit, 
in the end of the 90s, it got a little tight and mm. it got very tough. But that also changed the way business was going to be done now because it cleaned out all the independents and everybody was into large cavern cavernous New York City restaurants. They weren't going to the West Village anymore. And Mario had dispensed with Poe and started opening up Babo and you know, and restaurant and chefs were now Emerald and TV chefs were now the good ones, the ones that could really cook, were now taking that television tangibility and putting it into to restaurants, but multiple restaurants with large seats. Emerald took over New Orleans, right? Mario took over the West Village and Italian cuisine. Then if you go one step further, David Chang took over the world of Korean food and Asian-influenced food and now made it just kind of universal stoner food. And then from that, you have Danny Bowen doing Mission Chinese. You see how it, it all just blossomed mm -hmm. from, from an end of an era. Do you think that you'll see again uh, these individuals catching waves like they did during through like? Oh, the, it's got to happen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, only a foolish old man would say. Was it a timing thing that they just happened to hit the timing right where they? Yeah, where they, I, I, you know, it's 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 timing and talent, and uh, you know, it's it's the same thing. How do you explain? Now I'm 60. You know, I'm going to say I still. Everyone thinks I still look very Damn young. Good, man. I, I am. Damn and good. I, I can still do whatever I do. <laughs> blah blah blah. This, I just want to give you a frame a framework that I would move from New York after being you know, somewhat successful, somewhat notable in New York City, but having my ups and downs and reputational issues and you know, being a screaming chef, have, having substance abuse problems, but like 25 years ago, you know what I mean? And, and not to the length or depth that my friends did, but at the same time, when you're not succeeding or things end, they'll blame anything. To make it make sense, yeah. they'll blame all of the, your vices on your failure mm -hmm. when really it was just the fact of lack of insight and failure. And now getting back to today that I opened this small seafood restaurant again, right? And almost made the same mistake again, but it was an opportunity. This is again in New York. No, this was when we, you know, I, 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 I left New York. Okay. Now you're in Las Vegas. Um, I left New York after nine 11. I went to Lake Tahoe. Oh, okay. I, I always wanted to be, I said, why didn't I become a chef of a resort? So I, I did this East West partner thing. It was golf course, ski resorts. And I lived in beautiful Lake Tahoe. Okay. And then a fishmonger friend of mine called me up and said, Rick Moonen wants a chef de cuisine for his new restaurant in Las Vegas. He has just gotten three stars in the New York Times. Um, go meet Rick. So I met Rick in Las Vegas at Charlie Palmer Steakhouse. And I was supposed to be the chef for Las Vegas. And they said, well, let's go to New York. And I got to meet uh, Matt Accarino and Anthony Amoroso, who are now, Matt is now the chef at SPQR and a very well-known chef. And Anthony works for Michael Mina. So you, you see like the people that you fall into are still around you. Like I met two of the most young, talented chefs at the time breaking out. Matt left to go to work at Per Se. Anthony went to Michael Mina and he's still working for Michael Mina. You know, Adam Sobel replaced me at RMC Food. He kind of is Michael Mina's corporate chef. So, you know, like the, the situations I owned at a very young age, I made a lot of mistakes and I've learned along the way. And then at a moment, after all of these things, I tapped out and went to work for other people, right? So that was a scary moment for me because now am I going to become the journeyman lost chef? Where are my celebrity chef aspirations? Where are my, you know, desires to be at the top of my profession? Because I had opportunities, I had glimpses at it, I had shots out of it, and the perception was that even Bourdain put in his books, every time I would manage to succeed, I would self-destruct, mm. but yet survive. And that was a very accurate assumption. It's like peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys. But then I get to Texas, and I, you know, I replace Dean Faring, and I see a, a wide open frontier. However, 
you can't be the brash nor New Yorker and run into a southern city and just think you're going to change the landscape overnight because it's like that scene in Casino where Robert De Niro's talking to Billy Bob's uh, nephew okay. about the slot machines before he fires them. I'm not... I'm not Anyway, anyway well, there's, a, there's a scene in Scorsese's Casino where it's basically the mob is being taught that Las Vegas is still run by the good old boys. Okay. So Texas is still run by the good old boys. Okay? It's not a bad thing. It's history. Yep. It's where you move to. But in New York, you know, we, we think we can do whatever we want. So it took a while to go down there. And I got rid of the Southwestern food because Dean was going to open at the Ritz. And he did a year later to like tremendous success yep. and accolades. So, you know, and I just saw the opportunity. I mean, to replace Dean Farring reset the bar for people in the media and, and the awards people. Because it was a platform that always had had awards or it, or it was supposedly the best restaurant and hotel in Dallas and at this level that we all aspire to. So when I went in there and I saw the opportunity to, to do my own thing and it was well received, that gave me, it was almost like a cocky confidence because I was compensating for all of the, the shit I had yeah. messed up in the years before and I didn't really go at it the right way. Because I was like a bulldozer going through Dallas. I was like, now that I got the five stars, it was like, eh, you know, I got a letter yeah. from Thomas Keller here. That's like, <laughs> Forbes just gave us, you know, like, so, we're five mobile stars, America, and I'm, you know, dummy over here is the chef. <laughs> you know, so it, it gave me a platform. And I think that was one more lesson on how to use something the right way. Because that ended... Wait, it, what do you mean? Go into that. How to use something the right way. One more lesson. Well... If you have dreams and, and you want to be a restaurateur or you want to start your own company and you want to be the boss, you're still going to have to work for other people to gain this experience. And every, along the way, if you're, you should make mistakes because you, That's how you, you, learn. You, can't, you can't learn without falling down. Mm -hmm. you know, there is no success without failure. But you know, sometimes failure can cripple people and the, and the depth of failure... And if, if, when you read my book, the first line that Jordan picked out of me is like, you know, like success seems like it comes instantaneously, you know, like, but a failure takes a long, mm -hmm. and I'm paraphrasing, failure takes a lot longer to come back from, Yeah, you know, like, like an, an instant success, right, is right there in front of you and people are wowed by it. They don't even care how long it's going to last. They're just in awe of what they're seeing in the moment, right? Yeah. Failure takes years and years and then people still don't believe in you because they always have the reference they have like this ability to go back to the negative yeah. failure to manipulate you so, psychologically i'm curious this this failure that you're talking about this time in dallas uh was this around the time that that piece came out dallas most hated chef it, it, you know it was in, it was post that i had left and gone back to new york um a headhunter called me and i was, went to work for david burke because i thought it, you know it worked with moonin let me see if it worked with yeah. Burke, you know, like, and, and Burke, I knew for a long time and, and I, I loved him as a person and I saw his creativity. We had very different styles, yep. but he gave me an opportunity. It, and um, the, the sad part was that the mansion had so much potential. And I think that um, there was just some politics involved that they wanted to keep it the way it was and they didn't see the future. And that was basically the, the lesson that I had insight that people still weren't going to listen to. So how do you... I think this is the key is like, how do you, without telling long stories, how do you create a concept? How do you create a buzz? How do you create or deliver your personality to people as a chef, as a restaurateur, as a cook, 
that they're going to receive you. And you can see the process. You know, if you watch Top Chef, if you're a Top Chef fan, like people thought I had reinvented. I, I was the same person. It was just the way I learned how to conduct myself on television. And I had become more humbled and more gracious and, and appreciative of opportunities, including going back on television again mm -hmm. and getting to tell my story 10 years You've later. You've transformed. Yeah. And I think really at the end of the day, that's what this, this show is about, is capturing the transformation. You went through the process multiple times, succeeded, failed, oh, succeeded, insane. failed. I'm, I'm and an, you're transformed. And with every, with every you know, peak and valley, you're a different person. You're learning. You're coming back. You're, you're transforming over time. So you're at this place now. Um, how, how, back far, how far back are we going? We're talking like 2010, 2011? 2010, I left the mansion, and then I went out on my own in Dallas, kind of journeymaned around with, but as, you know, as a consultant and concept developer, came up with three really good solid concepts okay. that people in Dallas saw. So this was my Spoon potential. Kitchen? No, this is prior to, I le so I left the mansion, and then I did a thing called Cedar Social, okay. which was kind of like a spotted pig of Dallas. It was okay. like way ahead of its time. And then I did this thing, The Commissary, which was where we first started doing these hamburgers in the CVAP okay. with a wine bar. It was very, very well received. But the, these were things that I didn't own and I was consultant to. And then I went to Spoon. Due to the success and the, 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 the popularity and the creation of those concepts, bringing new, interesting things to Dallas, mm -hmm. people started to believe in me again. Regaining some momentum. Momentum. And then I... I, right when we opened Spoon was when season 10 of Top Chef opened. Okay. So it, it helped a lot. So you had that, that season dropping into like, did you uh, set it up Literally, like I know. See, see, the first time, I knew nothing. Yeah. Right? And I didn't know what I was gonna, how I was going to be portrayed. And I didn't, I, I didn't think I was really that bad. But people thought I was a bully or like whatever or I was mean. But I was really just an, an older contestant trying to establish that I had been around for a while and get to know people. And I was kind of naive that people are going to be that adversarial, that vicious. And that season, there were 22 of us, which is totally insane. Yeah. You know, and then they brought back Stefan, CJ, and Josie. And that was just a, a mindfuck. And, um, and that was like this season, 14, when there were eight veterans. And I was a veteran against eight rookies. I was just in the first stew room. I was like, I looked at Brooke and Sheldon and... And, every, and Casey and I'm going like, they don't have a freaking chance against this group, you know? So just the psychological yeah. aspect of it, you know? So I, I, I just think that all of these things that you can get, instead of using your ego and wanting to become successful or famous, experience, hard work, team around you, focus, all that stuff comes after you go through all the steps. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I kind of had early... I think, you know, millennial disease in the sense that, you know, I was in New York. I was kind of popular. I did a lot of the Food Network things in the beginning because yeah. we were in New York. They didn't fly chefs in at the time. You call it millennial disease. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got tapped. We yeah. got tapped into all that stuff. So, like, your head gets a little big. Yeah. You know, you start to believe what you're reading, you know, or the compliments. And I think that's the worst thing you can do as any kind of creative person. Like you mentioned earlier, staying humble. Yeah, you should know that you're good at something, but you should also know that you have to keep progressing. Yeah. But you have to work by that standard yep. and, and use the foundation as your rebuilding blocks. Yep. Yep. And then 
be clever and creative, you know, and that's where we're going as an yeah. industry, I hope. So let's let's take it to the point where you open Spoon. Uh, now it's pretty safe to say from that point on, you've you've had mostly successes in Ooh. your life. Yeah. So who <laughs> are right. you at this point? Right. Like what things are you doing differently? You've had all these lessons <laughs> and you're you, you can be much more intentional. Take us through what that that opening looked like and how why it's successful. I, I am. I am the fool's fool i believe that god takes care of me because i'm covered under the fools and the, ba <laughs> and the baby's protection plan um i went into spoon with all of this love and knowledge from my mother and parents of the, growing up in the hamptons in the water my love and respect for rick moon who is a true mentor and a genius with seafood for many years and then eric repair and my love of Le bernardin just being i think the best restaurant in the world you know i mean just because of it's uh, for seafood lovers you know? yeah um, so I took that and I put it into a small 50-seat restaurant in Dallas, and I thought it was going to be okay, and the whole world stumbled upon it. And it really, again, reset. You know, it's amazing reinvention, perception, television first, then the successful restaurant. People start to believe in you. You have credit. Credibility is the most important thing you can have, and without being humble, you can't really be credible because then you're just a freaking wild animal, yeah. you know? And for years, I know all of us chefs, we've all been gone through a wild animal phase, you know? And some of us, have, my friends have been destroyed by it, mm -hmm. you know? Like even, or you would think that someone's at the top of their profession and they take their life, you know? Like it's yeah. like, it's, so there's so many twists and turns. Um, and those are individual stories. And there could be tips and things to learn, but I think you can't emulate someone's life note for note. You have to take things that work and fit them into a business model and make them your own. Because if you otherwise you're just a mimic. So and I don't want to be a mimic. Yeah. You know, you so know. you're drawing on all these unique elements of your life from the, the the successes, the failures, the experiences from all these people that you admire, and you're taking those little bits and pieces, putting a new piece, a new puzzle together that's your own. Yeah. Um, but as far as like the business and running a business and leading and bringing people onto yourself and uh, paying attention to the bottom line and knowing your numbers. What, how did you approach this, this business like a business this time around? Uh, not to say you didn't the other times, but you, you pulled it off. You seem to be pulling these businesses off between uh, spoon and, and knife, uh, and you want to do multiple knives uh, across the nation. Is that still on the horizon? Um, you know, I want to get to that, but I, I don't want to lose the focus okay, of what okay. you said because it's really important. At Spoon, we had great financial analysis. Okay. And the only reason we closed the restaurant was because it didn't make enough money to warrant everybody that was involved in the project's time. Right? It would have been a passion project that I would have had to keep. At this point of your life, you're... Yeah, and it was a great, it was a great restart. I started again. I, I kind of looked at it the way I looked at 13 Barrow Street, but the right way. It wasn't sustainable financially. Not to make everybody happy long term to okay. keep involved because it took a lot of work. You know? So what you said you were, you were really paying attention to the financials. How were you paying attention? to Well, the we finance? weekly, daily reporting. Okay, you know, like you know, we set up systems. I mean, the important thing is to know everything that you're doing, and and you know, if you have that pro forma before you start, stay with it. You have to stay with it, and then you have to adjust it as business adjusts. And then um, from the success of Spoon, an investment company came to me that wanted to sell the Palomar Hotel and get Kimpton out. And there was a restaurant 214, which is where Knife is right now. So I had done Spoon for three years. And in the like second and a half year of Spoon, um, I got the opportunity to do Knife. And the caveat was that it had to be a steakhouse. So I went on this journey and saw what steakhouses didn't have and did have and reinvented it. And now four years later, 
we're making a ton of money for the hotel that literally owns that restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I license that restaurant to the hotel. But from that relationship, right, I have now a restaurant in Plano, which Starwood Equities is my partner. Okay. They gave us X amount, like a copious amount of money to open a 6,000 square foot knife in the reinvention of a mall. Okay. And we'll have a butcher shop and a, and a burger restaurant. We got approached by Legacy Hall Frontburner, who is a big restaurant company out of Dallas. They own Velvet Taco and Whiskey Cake and Las Colinas Ranch and endless, endless. They built this $100 million food hall with Femi and Legacy West. And we have a 325 square foot square foot burger restaurant called Knife Burger because of the success of our burgers from Knife. So you can see sometimes, so Spoon was a small 50 seat restaurant that probably would have spun off eighty dollars to $100,000 a year that had to be split up by multiple people. You, 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 it wasn't worth our time. Where Knife now, 73 seats, did $5.5 million last year yeah. with a profit of a million four consistently. And that million four to hotelier people, to yep. hedge fund guys, right, who own other projects, the word gets out on the street that Knife is a viable concept that not only has reputable food, or maybe, you know, at a level that people haven't seen in a while, and it's profitable, realtors are going to come to yeah. you and want to put things, and that's when you have to have that aha moment of, like, saying no. Yeah. Really, you know? really identify the key components that made knife profitable was it margins was it was it the was it seats the amount of volume you can do in a given amount of time uh, all the above was it simple it was menu luck or? it was luck with a product i mean i had no it's it's going into it it was like you know i knew steak would be popular but how do you keep that audience and would they appreciate what we were doing and we were damn lucky you know and people say well you created your own luck and you deserve this and i put all that together but i'm telling you it's the luckiest moment of my life i couldn't have predicted it i couldn't have tell you what the outcome came and then my second GM that we hired, George, who's now my partner, was the key to our longevity and really the next step to where we are today. And that's, this is, this is the, the answer you've been trying to get out of me since the beginning. <laughs> so, but it, I wanted you to understand all the things that le lead up to it and sometimes just the random synchronicity that occurs. And you have to take someone and, and make them believe in you and then make them a partner. Because you're a team at that point and George does everything I can't do and I'm rewarding him, and if we succeed, he will be more than compensated for his yeah. hard work. You know. Let's go deeper into who George is. So he's, he's everything you can't do. So you know yourself pretty well at this point. You know yeah. your lane. You know your strengths. You know your weaknesses. And you kept this uh, list of knowing who's around you, knowing the potential people you can pull on. What was it about George? Why did you go to George? How, how does he complete you? Um, you know, he just did it because it's who he is. You know, first of all, that's his profession. And I respect that. And he does it really, really well. And he analyzes everything. And he squeezes every penny. And he's extremely frugal. And yet he still respects the boundary of me being the chef and the creator of this. Mm -hmm. And then now after four years, if he says no, I just go, I look at everybody and he goes, George says no. Just, yeah. They, they, because I know that we, he's telling me that it's not a good deal. Yeah. It's not something to do. And like you asked me at the very first question, do I feel unstoppable? right? After all I've been through, there's an end to everything. Yeah. And that's part of the humbleness is like prolonging the end because everything, you know, I'm getting older now. I, don't, I want to prolong my life. I don't want yeah. the end to come, right? A restaurant has a shelf life, but a successful restaurant is not 24 to 36 months. It's five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's financial return. It's, it's peer acceptance. 
It's, it's consistent covers every single night. And this is very difficult to occur without spending copious amounts of money or, you know, like being super mega talented and also having copious amounts of money. I mean, all these things uh, over the course of my life, I've struggled with like having one of these things and missing the other two. And now for some strange reason, you're looking at the owner of the company. We are going to have a knife, that knife in Plano with the butcher shop. We're going to have several of the burger locations, some of them in food halls, eventually probably freestanding. Um, the people at the Highland Hotel, the people that own that hotel there, and Interstate um, believed in me enough to give me another resort in Laguna Beach to bring Spoon back, except I'm going to be calling it Outer Reef. See, so, so knowing when you have something good, even if it doesn't work, being able to retool it and put it in the right place at the yep. right time. But without the opportunity, you know, and I've been just lucky. You know, I survived and used all of this experience. And I do, you know, I'm not ripping on millennials, right? But I'm an encyclopedia of experience, right? I, wanted to, I like talking to kids, brutally and honestly. I did television only so they would respect me because if I didn't do that, they would just go like, well, how come you never did television? You know, like, I'm like so I did it, you know? Yeah. So I've been on Beat Bobby Flay, like everything you could possibly, every competition show imaginable. Just so, you know, and, and it's, it's helped people get to know me. Like, it's crazy. People, like, take pictures of you and, like, they, they want to get to know you. Or, you know, and it's amazing, the support, you know. And, I, and this season, 14, I still stay in touch with everybody on the season. It's awesome. We cook together around the country. We were just in New Jersey with Bruce Kalman and BJ and, like, other seasons, you know. So it's, it's amazing that we've had this camaraderie. But I'm very different because I'm, I'm like, the OG of it. Yeah. And, and, and I'll fight for that, you know, and I'm proud of that. But, you know, like, again, going back to the radishes, you know, I'll have philosophical arguments with my peers about the progression of food because they're trying to just be different. And I understand that, you know, everybody needs to find their niche. But I think the sooner that you start learning that, and especially in this day and age, in this particular period, we may grow out of this period, just like we grew out of the molecular gastronomy. But I doubt it because I think the trend right now is a better hamburger, a better pizza, a better sandwich. You know, you, you're seeing it. You know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's like every and people don't want a three hour meal and spend six hundred dollars. I mean, they'll go to Cezanne once or they'll go to a two thousand dollar white burgundy dinner at a, at a restaurant because they're. But that's like, what, a hundred people out of all the people that yeah. go to restaurants. The majority of people want fast, casual, you know, great ambiance, yep. a good glass of wine, a good drink. You know, and they're, they're less apt to um, scrutinize the food. So I think the opportunity is that if you can give them all of the other things and the whistles and bells that they're so craving these days and you serve better food than the average person, you're good. that's your niche. You know, like this is where I'm saying you always have to find the hole. Yeah. We're talking, I mean, we're, by the way, we're almost, we're at a... Fifty-five minutes. Time goes by really fast when you're doing this. No, you're, no, don't be I'll sorry. Back, was, I'll come back and we'll it, do, we can do part two. Uh, one day. <laughs> anything you want to add? I don't want to cut you short. Anything you want to add that you haven't got out that you, you you wanted to make sure you got out before we go to the speed round? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to be negative in any way or perceived as that way. I just want to be um, people to be safe and a little bit conservative when it comes to and 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 have some honesty just in general in life. Yeah. I, I've had to learn these lessons myself. You know, I'm not. I'm far from perfect. I've made every mistake. I've been unscrupulous and desperate at times and um you know you learn how to be a better person but when it comes to the restaurant business just honesty you know and 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 ask more from your writers and your critics and your favorite magazines to to cover the real beat the real scene not just 
13 people that happen to have a following on TV that can sell an ad, you know, like, yeah. because when, when things become too business driven, we lose the honesty. And, and, I, and I think that if you really want an honest shot at being creative, being the next innovator, being successful, the only way you're going to get there is with honesty. I love it, Chef. Um, one more question before we go to the speed round. We'll make it quick. Um, you talked about how you've transformed a bunch of times. So, still, still doing. So emotionally, <laughs> on an emotional level, um, who are you emotionally today? What matters to you emotionally? I'm, I'm pretty. Sta- I'm probably the most stable I've ever been these days. And you know, just going through middle age can be, you know, like uh, menopause can be a little. And I'm, I'm far from that, but I. You know, the, the, the fact that, you know, my friend put it in the fact that you have somewhere between 30 to 60,000 days left in your life can really encapsulate and fo- make you focus. Um, but the, the most important thing is that I really have the need to give back. You know, if you follow me, I do a lot of charity and it's not to be, you know, patted on the back. It's because I've always wanted to leave an imprint of like, you know, like I'm not an asshole. I'm not out for myself. I'm, it's not about notoriety. It's, it's about being a good person yeah. and leaving the legacy of like he knew how to run restaurants he served really good food and he really wasn't that bad of a guy yeah. you know and and i was i'm a great dad by the way if, awesome you know if my kids are listening <laughs> dad's a great guy right and they're all going yeah all right we'll <laughs> we'll take a break here to thank our sponsors she's standing right across from us ethics suite uh and we'll be right back to crank out a speed round Facebook marketing, it's scary and intimidating, but it's also by far the most profitable paid media platform available to attract new and retain paying customers. It's only scary and intimidating because it's foreign to you, and that's scary. What you don't know, you don't understand, that's scary. Our good friend, past guest mentor, and industry expert, Nick Fosberg, can help you figure it out and make it less scary. He's giving Restaurant Unstoppable listeners his automated cash flow masterclass, which is valued at $1,500 away for free. When Nick told me this, I thought he was up to something that seemed like way too good of a deal, but he went on and he explained to me that this is a new product. He's got to test it out. So you're the test driver. And because you're restaurant unstoppable listeners, you're getting this sucker for free. So go to restaurant, Facebook systems.com. For more details, the masterclass starts this upcoming week. Guys, don't delay restaurantfacebooksystems.com or find the banner in the show notes. Finally, a simple, affordable, and legal way to share the music that best represents your brand. It's called Soundtrack Your Brand. Get access to soundtracks tailored for any business. Side note, studies have shown that playing the right music can impact your sales. Do you have questions about what that right music is? Soundtrack Your Brand can help you there too. Here's a fun fact. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening to this already have a Spotify account. Well, you can take playlists from your account and import them directly into soundtrackyourbrand.com. And my guests are always saying on the show that their restaurants are an extension of their own personal brand. Well, so isn't your music. And now you can marry these things together legally. Unlike Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack Your Brand is licensed for business use. Skip the hassle of ASCAP and BMI because with Soundtrack Your Brand, it's already included. You can even schedule music for the whole week and adapt the music for each day part. Typically, this deal goes for $26.99 per month, but if you act now before the end of August, you can get this deal for $19.99 per location per month for life. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. 
We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, tenacity. Tenacity. Mm. Believing what? in yourself. No, knowing that when everybody says you can't do it, that you can, but be re- extremely realistic about it. You know, you got to look yourself right in the mirror and say, am I lying to myself? Do I have a shot at this? And is everybody so affected that um, they're not seeing that I'm really doing something good? I love it. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Um, it used to be that I cared what other people thought about me, but um, you would think the contrary, but um, I've overcome that. So my, my weakness right now is like, I just want to retain my youthful nature. And, and remain active and relevant. You know, so that, that's a vulnerability, I guess, rather than a weakness. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? When you're building your team, what are you looking for? Oh, passion. Passion first. You know, like passion and, and, the, and the potential of loyalty. Loyalty is not something that gets delivered during the resume, but um, you can sense it in people and then you need to develop it and cherish it because um, without a team, you're, you're nobody. Yep. You're What's your nobody. biggest challenge today? Um, staffing. Every, everyone in the restaurant business will tell you staffing, mm-hmm. you know, th- and that's on a larger scale. And then, and then the rest of it is just unscrupulous uh, realtors who want to charge too much for, you know, overpriced properties, and and building false competition around a, a good concept, you know, that's only going to be there for twenty four months. So, real quick, how are you overcoming that? Because a lot of people, it's like you said, it's for everybody's. They have they have that same challenge. So, how are you overcoming? Well, that t- today for the first time, you know, I'll quote my friend Bourdain. You know, except he was forty four and I was fifty eight. So, like, um, only at the age of fifty eight did I stop living paycheck to paycheck, um, and I still have that fear. You know, I think that's a good apprehension to have. Like. Be aware that it could all go away in the blink of an eye, you know, and you don't want to become like uh, neurotic about it, but I think it's something to focus on. And that's still my greatest fear. And, um, you know, to overcome that, it's just, it's, it's success has done that for me. You know Beautiful. what I mean? It's weird. I don't, I don't, know how to, I don't I like to call it success because it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing journey and venture. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be. This is a core value. Oh, mutual respect and, and no drama. You know, like it's okay to get heated during the service if you care about food, but belittling a coworker, you know, um, compromising your work when you know you should do better is, is just, uh, you know, that's shoemaker stuff. And like, you know, disrespecting people you work with is just terrible or acting out that way. It's like, you know, and I, I've been guilty of it many, many years ago. And now with HR and Me Too and all the stuff, it's just like, you know, everybody just be, be work hard, but be nice to everybody. Absolutely. You know? uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's standard within your four walls, but not standard throughout the industry on a level of service. Um, you know, I really like to develop relationships because we have a lot of repeat customers. So I like the servers, you know, it's like to send notes to people personally. Um, I like them to go out of their way. And I also like them to understand like where I am if I'm not in the restaurant, you know, like we, we really develop a family atmosphere. And I think that's, that's something that I've learned from successful restaurateurs that doesn't exist in a lot of places. What's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? Oh, knife, steakhouse, meals at home, of course. Yeah. You know? So I mean, I mean, there's a lot of cookbooks out there, but I, I really think that people should take a look at this book because I know it says steak on the front and people go like, I know how to cook steak. You, there's a lot of lies in the meat business and there's a lot of techniques that you really should take a look at and there's a lot of great classic recipes done like Escoffier so um, you know in my own 
active self, uh, selfish uh, self-promotion, I would say Knife Steakhouse meets at home. And, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show That's notes. That's a McMillan Flatiron <laughs> book, too. I, I want to thank Will Schwebe and also my literary agent, David Hale-Smith. Nice. Uh, share an online resource or tool you leverage, whether it's a place you go to learn or educate, like, you know, a podcast, a blog, a industry, whatever, or uh, a technology that makes you more efficient. Wow. You know, I think I do all, I try to gather all those things simultaneously, but there's a lot of junk yeah. in, in all of that. So you kind of have to gather it all simultaneously and develop your own filter. So I know that's not a direct answer to your question, but I think it's more realistic yeah. answer to your question because, you know, I take Instagram, I take famous chefs, I look at the Pellegrino 50 list, I look at the James Beard Awards, and then I go out in the world and I try to experience these things viscerally and be the judge for myself based yeah. upon experience and history. And that's the step. We're yeah. going back to the standard, you know? Yeah. Honestly, other than podcasts, I don't really pay attention to industry <laughs> stuff, but I, I get out and I talk to nine people a week who are in the industry. Yeah. So I guess that's worth something, right? No, definitely. <laughs> you know, you know, listen, the, there is no doubt that media is the only way you're ever going to find out about any of us in this business. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, just keep listening and you. keep gathering information. So what is one technology that you've leveraged within your four walls that you're really excited about that's making you more efficient, more profitable, uh, improving communication that you want to share with our, our listeners? Oh, you know, we've just developed uh, a sourcing for 100% Angus, all Texas beef, and a dry aging process that only Adam Perry Lang is privy to. And um, that's what makes us different than most steakhouses. And, you know, we've developed that technology it is technology and and technique and it's very expensive it's very timely and you have to have a lot of inventory and lay things down but i think that's one thing that we've done that's innovative that's made do you share it in your book uh we do share it in all book, right yeah. well you have to check and we're out about to, i'm hopefully going to write a book about dry aging very soon because it's Beautiful. become dry aging has become the new farm to table word but i'll tell you that 90 uh, percent of the time when you read dry aged it's BS, and, and putting something in a box for 45 days without a wrapper on it is not dry aging. Okay. Just FYI out there, folks, okay? <laughs> All right, this is the last question. The question, it's a doozy, so be ready for it. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of yes. you, your work, your restaurants would be lost with your departure, except for three pieces of wisdom. Three things you know to be true about your success, uh, and for the good of humanity, for your legacy, what would those three things be? Work hard, be honest, and respect others' opinions, even though you may differ from them. Chef John Tazar, this has been a great conversation, <laughs> man. I loved every moment of it. Let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you? How can we follow if you want to stay on top of what you're oh, doing? Oh, please. Find your book. Thank you, Eric. It's, you know, this is awesome. I love, you know, anytime I can sit somewhere and just talk for a straight hour and not do anything, <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate it. And you've been awesome. So, Thank you. Yeah, it's Chef John Tazar um, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, don't follow me on Twitter unless you uh, like politics, because I'm almost more political than I am uh, culinary, <laughs> especially today. And I, I'm sorry if I offend anybody by that, by my opinions. And then John Tizar on Facebook, John, Chef John Tizar on Facebook, ChefJohnTizar.com, and on and on and on. You, know, you can find us at Knife. Uh, and I'll have Dallas. those links in the show yeah. notes so you guys don't have to remember just head over to the show if notes. you can't find me there's a problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, let the folks at home know um, who do you respect and oh admire who is one person I need to get on the show I'm going to be up in Dallas and I'm going to be up in Austin for the next week so maybe somebody in your market that you, you think would make a great guest mentor I, you know, I think you should talk to Dean Farring if you're going to come up to Dallas but I think if anything you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he might not want to talk right now but Eric Repair and I'm not talking about talking about Tony I'm just talking about 
I'm sorry. I've, I've just always had the greatest respect for the entire team at La Bernadette, and I still think it's one of. The, I think it's the best restaurant in New York. It's the best seafood restaurant in the world. Um, you know, I, I read I, his book too, so I'd love. And that he's an amazing, humble guy. You know, I, I I knew him at one time briefly with from Bourdain and from eating there, but he travels so much, and him and Tony were on the road so much. I I haven't seen those guys in like at least two years or so. I, I would run into them with Scott Bryan. So, uh, but you should definitely have him on the show. I think Rick Moonen would be an amazing guest because he could talk about sustainability and seafood, which a lot of people don't know a lot about, especially right. in Texas. And, uh, you know, just keep doing what you do. And there's, there's an endless amount of people that want to oh, talk man. to you, I'm sure. Eric, Rick, look out. I'm coming after you guys. Setting the bar high for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> don't forget Dean. Don't and Dean, Dean. And Dean. Sorry. Dean will play a song for yeah. you. like Howard Stern <laughs> over here. <laughs> uh, and let the... Wait. Already asked you that. I'm all over the place. It's okay. Uh, so, um, again, Chef, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks for everything. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, uh, man. Dude, it was fun. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Chef John Tazar, thank you again so much for coming on the show, sharing your story, sharing your mentorship, and just getting raw and opening up and getting real with me and my audience. I appreciate you. I think uh, the opening quote of today's conversation is a really good summary of today's conversation as well. Uh, stay humble, think everything through, work your ass off and appreciate others. You know, that humility part right there, uh, you know, succeeding, failing, succeeding, failing, uh, growing along the way and figuring out what works, what doesn't work and who's really responsible at the end of the day for your success is yourself. Right. And, uh, developing that discipline, surrounding yourself with the right people that can help you move ahead. And uh, I love this idea too that he mentions uh, knowing that uh, you're only as good as your reputation, right? Uh, I think I'm not quite sure if those are the exact words he used, but uh, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. You're only as good as your, your reputation and you got to, you know, you got to build up that reputation. If you fall, you got to earn it back. You, you don't just, you can't just, you know, coast off past successes. You got to get out there. You got to earn that respect. And I think that's what chef John Tazar did, uh, getting back out there, earning the respect of his, uh, his peers and, and climbing back to the top again. And now he's got that, that proof that he can handle the job and people are investing in him. So great stuff today. Like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Cacciatore. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me who I can best serve you. I'm also on Spotify now. So if you guys are jamming out on Spotify, be sure to listen to me over there. And uh, uh, as you're listening to this, I'm in Seattle and I want to meet up with you guys. So if you're out here in Seattle and you have some recommendations for me, some people I need to talk to, put them on my radar. And after Seattle, I'm headed south to Oregon and uh, I would love to meet up with you if you're in Oregon same same deal let me know who I need to talk to let me know who I need to make an example of alright guys that's all for today thank you so much for sticking around this long I love you all until next time peace out